Hello Crucible Church and Happy New Year! If you're new to this church, my name is Dan Forrest and today I am continuing in our series on David and Me with 2 Samuel chapter 6. And as we always do, we're going to start the sermon with a video clip. Today I've chosen a clip from the BBC version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And unlike the theatrical version released years later, this version has some really bad costumes which you're going to see. But the dialogue that I want us to hear is not in the newer movie, so it's only in the BBC version. I'm surprised it's not in the theatrical release because it's actually one of the most famous lines in the book. I've heard it used so many times in different sermons. I've used it myself many times. And while the scene that we're going to be looking at today, the Pevensey children are new to the world of Narnia, and they have been taken in by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are explaining to them who Aslan is. Let's watch. Who is Aslan? Who is? Wait, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Though he doesn't often come here, you understand. Certainly never in my time, but word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the White Queen all right. It's he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone. <laughs> Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say. <laughs> turn him into stone? Why, if she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect. No, he'll put all to right. I am to lead you to where you shall meet him. Is he... is he a man? Aslan? A man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood. Why, don't you know who is the king of beasts? You mean... a lion? Certainly. The lion. The great lion. I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearies, and no mistake. But if there's anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe? Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. <laughs> yeah, I told you those costumes aren't so good. Look at this Aslan. <laughs> this is Aslan here uh, talking to the White Witch. And uh, not super realistic lion. It's not too bad there. Other places it looks really bad. But anyways, the point of this uh, clip is Aslan is certainly not safe, but he is good. And I love this analogy from C.S. Lewis because we can fall into the trap of thinking... Oh, you know, God and Jesus are, they're so good and loving. They're, you know, our friends. They must be safe. They must be easy to be with. But the truth is, God is not safe. But he is good. And that truth is expressed in 2 Samuel 6, which we're going to see very soon. Uh, I was watching a YouTube video the other day about some guys who managed to get Ed Sheeran to accompany them to a boxing match in LA. And if you don't know who Ed Sheeran is, He's one of the world's best-selling music artists, selling over 150 million records worldwide. And here's a picture of him at that boxing match in L.A. These guys were so excited to have Ed Sheeran with them at this event. Because just by being with Ed, 
they could go anywhere they wanted. He is so famous and so popular, they didn't have to buy tickets for the event. They got to go to an exclusive pre-fight party. They got amazing seats ringside. They got VIP treatment at a nightclub afterwards. For these guys, going with Ed Sheeran's presence gave them an experience that they could never have had on their own. It was a night they would never forget. But the thing is, this isn't actually Ed Sheeran. This is some guy named Ty Jones from Manchester who's a professional Ed Sheeran lookalike. And this is a photo of Ty Jones on the left with the real Ed Sheeran on the right. And Ty looks so much like Ed that people constantly come up to him to get their selfies taken with him. And for this boxing match, these guys paid Ty and they flew him to LA and they pretended that he was Ed Sheeran so they could pull off this amazing prank and have this awesome experience. And it totally worked. Everyone was fooled. The whole night they were getting mobbed by fans and they got all these amazing perks just because they were with Ed Sheeran. In the Old Testament, we read that God chose to be present with his chosen people, the Israelites, in an unconventional way. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, they knew the presence of God was with them in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night to guide them. But then God said, make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, so that I can dwell in your midst. And more specifically and personally, he instructed Moses to make an ark, which would be the place where God would meet with Moses and speak to him. And this is an artist's rendition of what the ark might have looked like. It was a box made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. Moses was given, was given very specific instructions about the dimensions of the ark, how to fasten the poles, and how it was to be transported. And on top of the ark was placed an atonement cover with the two cherubim, Wings stretched towards each other, and this was called the mercy seat, where God would sit and offer forgiveness of sins. And inside the ark was placed the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments etched on them, along with Aaron's staff that budded during the miraculous encounter with Pharaoh, as well as a preserved jar of manna, the food that God provided for them in the wilderness. These three objects were a constant reminder of who God was to the Israelite people. He was the one who commanded them, the one who saved them, and the one who provided for them. The Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God among his people. This wasn't an idol. The Israelites didn't worship the Ark or bow down to it, but they recognized symbolically and spiritually God was present among them within this box. Throughout the Old Testament, we read stories of how God provided safety and success when the Israelites traveled with the Ark. As they approached the promised land for the first time, they carried the ark in front of them and the Jordan River parted so they could cross. In their first major victory in the promised land, they carried the ark around the walls of Jericho and God caused the walls to miraculously fall before them. At the ark, Joshua cried out to the Lord in lament. With the ark beside him, Joshua read the law to the people and before going into battle, the Israelites would consult the ark. The ark was a physical, intangible object, signifying that God's presence was among them. And when they walked with God's presence, they could go anywhere. They could win battles. They could walk without fear. They could accomplish anything. Fortunately, that's not exactly how the ark worked, though. They began to think that the ark itself was some sort of magic talisman that could, they could bring into battle and be victorious every time. But the ark was the presence of 
God. It wasn't a weapon or a magical object or a good luck charm. It was the presence of God and they forgot that you can't control God. One time the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines, something that they should not have done. And if they, have, if they had asked God, he would have told them not to do it. But they thought they could win the fight with their magic ark, and they were defeated terribly. Not only did they lose the battle and thousands of men, they also lost the ark. In the battle, the Philistines stole it and took it back with them. By trying to manipulate God for their own benefits, the Israelites lost the presence of God for a time. But while in the presence of the Philistines, the ark caused problems for them, causing the statue of their temple god to bow down before it, and also bringing plagues among them. The Philistines eventually gave the ark back out of fear, and the Israelites once again had the presence of God among them. But they didn't really seem to embrace or understand what that meant after that. And for the most part, the ark was kept in a town called Kiriath-Jerim, and it was more or less forgotten about there. Until King David came along. He understood the significance and rich blessing the ark was for the people of God. David loved the ark so much because he understood it represented the presence of God. What a valuable relationship that is. And he made it his life mission to create a more permanent place for the ark in Israel. So that God's dwelling would always be among his people. And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. This is the story of when David recovered the ark. So let's read it now. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Okay, we can already see that there is some trouble brewing. Remember how I said earlier that God specifically instructed the priests on how the ark was to be transported. There were these special poles that went through rings on the side that the, the priests had to carry the ark by hand. But here, they've put it on a new cart. And the priest Abinadab and his sons Uzzah and Ahio, they should have known better. This was not how God had instructed them to transport the ark. And as David and all Israel, and, and as all Israel is celebrating, this happens. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the, Gitt uh, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Oded 
All these Old Testament names. Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Okay, this is such an extreme story. All Uzzah did was reach his hand out to protect the ark when the ox pulling it stumbled. And God struck him dead. Seems pretty over the top. But once again, Bible stories like this are really hard for us to digest the 21st century. I'm not really going to try to understand the ethics of God's actions here or explain how this is morally right, but there is an important truth for us in this story, and Eugene Peterson really gets at it in his book Leap Over the Wall. He writes, in this imaginative context, we can guess that Uzzah's reflexive act, reaching out to steady the ark as the oxen stumbled, wasn't the mistake of a moment. It was a piece of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. What Peterson is arguing here is that Uzzah and Ahio and Abinadab had all failed in their priestly duty of taking care of the ark. Their job was to be faithful to God's commands, not to protect God or manage God or control God, do with God whatever they wanted. This wasn't a one-time mistake for Uzzah. It was probably a lifetime of thinking that he was in control of God. Yes, God was literally in a box, but spiritually, they weren't supposed to contain God to that box. And in this story, we learn that God is not safe, that we can't manipulate him. In a sense, they had taken on the role of God. And this is a very dangerous place to be because they are not God. They have been given a highly important task, but they are not as important as God. So even though God strikes Uzzah down dead in this moment, spiritually, Uzzah had been dead all along, as over all these years, he had suffocated the life of God out of himself by working to control God and manipulate him. So now David is upset because he doesn't think he's worthy to proceed with the ark. He abandons it with Obed-Edom. With Uzzah, we learn that God is not safe. But with Obed-Edom, we see that God is still good in his care. God blesses Obed-Edom and those around him. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, with rejoicing. When those, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Well, this news inspires David to continue his project of bringing the presence of God back to where it should be, in the city where the king rules. David is acknowledging that, yes, he is the king, but ultimately God is king. And God's presence should be right there by David's side. And as David brought the ark back, there was much rejoicing. Wearing linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Okay, so David is essentially dancing in his underwear here. That's what linen ephod is. He's so excited about God's presence returning that he does not even care what others think of him or how he's dressed. 
None of these things matter to David because God is here. But in the eyes of his wife, Michal, this is shameful. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had, after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. Just going to say, I don't know if I'd be too happy to get a cake of raisins. Not a huge fan of raisins and pastry. Maybe you guys are. Just a little side note there. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Michal is not on the same page as David. She doesn't get it. And have you ever been in a situation like this where you're so excited about Jesus or something that Jesus has done in your life or something you've heard about Jesus doing for somebody else, but then someone comes along and just squashes your joy? Either they're embarrassed by the way you're acting or they're embarrassed by what you believe. It can be so discouraging when someone tries to steal our joy. But then here we have Mikal stealing David's joy, and she gets a pretty extreme punishment for doing that. Oh, you're ashamed of David rejoicing before me? Well, boom, no kids for you. You're barren for the rest of your life. Let this be <laughs> Let this be encouragement to you. If anyone tries to steal your joy in worshiping God, whoever tries to shame you, God will make them infertile. Yikes. Well, once again, Michal is not in the same mindset as David. In fact, she's in the same mindset as Uzzah. She's trying to control the situation. She's trying to manage God and God's people without fully realizing what's really important here. What's important is not how David looks or how Michal looks or how the family looks. What's important is God's presence is among us. And David is dancing because he is filled with the life and joy of the almighty God among them. But Michal is far from God. And she is shaming him because she is filled with emptiness and bitterness. Spiritually, she is barren and devoid of life inside. So it makes sense that she is not able to produce physical life. In the presence of God, David has no fear of what others think of him. He only cares about being in the presence of God again. And that overflows him with joy. David's desire was to build a permanent dwelling place for God in the form of a temple, but he wasn't able to. Instead, his son, King Solomon, got to do that. And the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies there. There's a psalm, Psalm 132, which is a, so which is a song celebrating the day, this day when David brought the ark back. 
And it's also a, day, a psalm that celebrates when Solomon built the temple for that ark. And Jewish pilgrims that were traveling back to Jerusalem would sing this song, Psalm 132, with great rejoicing. Because to be back in Jerusalem meant to be back with the presence of God. Back at the temple where God dwelled on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. For the Israelites, the Ark was the power of God. With the Ark, they could conquer lands, rule with authority, be a safe and secure nation. And the Ark was also the holiness of God. As we just read, those who mishandled the Ark faced the wrath of God. And this reminded the people that God was not safe. God was not a weapon or an object that we can control. But they also knew that God was good because the ark was the forgiveness of God. From the ark, God granted forgiveness and restored relationships. However, because the Israelites kept disregarding their covenant with God, God allowed Babylon to rise up and destroy the temple, taking the Israelites into exile. And it's at this point we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It was either taken back to Babylon as a token or it was destroyed. Some even think that it was snuck away to Ethiopia before anything bad could happen to it. And it's still there to this day. Some people claim that. I actually saw a documentary a few years ago. It turns out that the Ark was discovered back in the 1930s by an archaeologist named Indiana Jones, I think his name was. Although after he found it, I think it's just sitting in a government warehouse in the States somewhere, unfortunately. Wait, that's not a true story? My brother lied to me when I was a kid? How dare he? Okay, so the Ark was lost with the Babylonian exile, and 70 years later, the Israelites returned to Israel, and they rebuilt the temple. But it wasn't as magnificent as the first temple. And with no Ark, the second temple was kind of pitiful. When Israel had the ark, they were thriving and they were a successful nation. Under King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel extended its boundaries so far and was truly blessed. But without the ark, Israel was always under the authority of other nations. First the Persians, then the Greeks, and in Jesus' time, under the Romans. But even though they didn't have the ark, they still had this image here, the Holy of Holies. This was in the temple. This was the room that once contained the Ark, and it was still considered, even though it didn't have the Ark, it was still considered the dwelling place of God. And in the Holy of Holies, the high priest would enter once a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and seek atonement from God. And just just like back in the wilderness, the Holy of Holies was blocked by this, uh, this veil here that only the consecrated priest could pass through. But then comes Jesus, a direct descendant of King David, one who was totally faithful to the law, and he did what David's other descendants couldn't do. He kept the covenant, and he spiritually took back the throne of Israel. And in Matthew, we read that after Jesus died on the cross, the veil to the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus removed all the barriers between us and God, and restored our relationship with God once again. I would argue that the ark was actually brought back to Israel earlier than this time, but in a different form, in a very unconventional way. And when the ark was brought back this time, once again, there was much rejoicing. 
In Luke 2, we read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company, the heavenly host, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. God's presence came back to Israel once again, but not in the form of a box, but in a baby lying in a manger. And this is Jesus, who is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus promised that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. Because of Jesus, we don't need the ark or the temple or the Holy of Holies because now we are the temple of God with the spirit of Jesus living inside us. God doesn't dwell in a box or in a blocked off room. He dwells in our hearts. He dwells in our collective community. Wherever we go, we go with the presence of God. But once again, know that when we go with the presence of God, we are going with a God who is not safe, but who is very good. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we have a special power and privilege over other people. Doesn't mean we're above the law. Just because Jesus lives inside us doesn't mean we have some sort of magic talisman or good luck charm or all these magical abilities. We can't control or, manipul or manipulate God. God is not safe. But there is much rejoicing. Like David rejoiced before the ark of God, we rejoice as we walk in this world with the presence of God here among us wherever we go. And the important question that we need to ask ourselves today is what are we going to do with God's presence? How are we as the church going to live in this world with God's presence? You know, I'm ashamed to say that for many years, Christians and the church have used the name of God to do terrible things. Terrible things uh, as they went from one country to another. Terrible things as they... Uh, um, treated other Christians with disdain for going against what they believed. Terrible ways that we in Canada have treated First Nations people um, by saying we're Christians, so this land is ours, sorry. There's lots of things that Christians have done throughout the years that have been horrible, and we've done them all in the name of Jesus, saying that we're doing this with God's presence. But that's not what Jesus' desire is for us. We can look at how the Israelites walked with God's presence as a beginning step for us. As I said earlier, the Israelites relied on the ark 
as their source of power and guidance. They had a healthy fear of the ark, knowing that if they tried to control it, they would suffer the consequences. And they went to the ark for forgiveness and healing. And because we're Christians, the best way for us to answer that question is to look at how Jesus lived with God's presence. Jesus extended the borders of the church, but not with force and conquest like in the Old Testament, but with love and grace and acceptance. Jesus showed compassion to strangers and foreigners. Jesus extended forgiveness to those with great guilt. Jesus listened to people who had no voice. He touched people who were unclean. Jesus included those who were marginalized, outcast, poor, and insignificant. Jesus brought healing and wholeness and reconciliation. Jesus sought justice for the systems and Jewish leadership which had been corrupted. All of these are examples of how we, his church, should live and move and breathe in this world with his presence. Well, as we head into this new year, let's rejoice without shame that God is amongst us. But let's also be careful not to think that we can control God. God is not safe, but he is good. Go in God's blessing.